are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Evocative, lyrical, narrative. Anne Nykirk is a composer and music educator. She divides her compositional pursuits between acoustic and electroacoustic composition and is generally drawn to creative processes that involve interdisciplinary work and collaboration. Dr. Nykirk received her Doctor of Musical Arts degree in composition from Temple University in Philadelphia, preceded by a Master of Music degree in composition from Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and a Bachelor of Arts degree in music from Hamilton College. In 2016, she began as an assistant professor of composition and theory at Norfolk State University in Virginia, where she teaches courses in composition, music theory, oral skills, contemporary music, and theory pedagogy. She currently serves as the composition board member for the College Music Society Northeast Chapter and also as the submissions coordinator for the Executive Committee of the Society of Composers Incorporated. We are pleased to welcome Anne as a new member of the Adjective New Music Composers Collective. I want to start with your piece uh, years later, mm-hmm. and we're going to hear one movement from that called Gangrel, which is the sixth movement. But this is a song cycle for mezzo-soprano and string quartet, and can you talk a, a little bit about how you found the poet of this? Well, first of all, who the poet is, how you found her, and why did this text kind of speak to you? Sure. Uh, so the poet's name is Penelope Cray, and she actually is um, my cousin-in-law. She's the wife of my cousin. So um, she has an MFA. So that's how you found so, her. So, yep, family connection there. Yep. <laughs> um, and she has an MFA in poetry from the New School, and... Um, I was looking for a uh, text to set for a piece that initially was a a kind of studio pairing project when I was a graduate student between uh, the viola studio and the composers. And I asked her if she could send me uh, something that she'd written for that particular project, which at that time was just an isolated song. And uh, so she sent me her entire um, master's thesis poetry manuscript And uh, I started pouring through it and just was really drawn to her language. And she uses um, a narrative arc in her poetry to kind of, she strung together all of her poems in this manuscript into this this beautiful narrative story that was um, very poignant and um, kind of sad, but also uh, uplifting at the same time. So I was really drawn to the story. And so I set just one isolated song and then uh, just kind of kept going back to that set to work on other projects and then kind of decided to string them all together into a song cycle. Um, so I kind of built my own smaller narrative out of the because her her set was, you know, probably I think around 80 poems or so. And I just picked, you know, eight of right. them for this cycle. Um, so. I kind of drew from the ones that I thought uh, lent themselves to a musical setting the most and that also could kind of still preserve a a narrative line through them. So, um, yeah, the cycle ended up being for string quartet and mezzo, and uh, it's kind of divided into only four of the eight songs are full of full, full string quartet, and then the other four are for subdivisions. So that's kind of the... And and the story that i mean the 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 narrative in your set mm-hmm. what is what is that kind of talking about so um it basically goes through so the the general um 
narrative, the, the poems are all told from the point of view of a person who has died and is looking back on the life that he lived and uh, particularly kind of observing his family and his daughter. <clears throat> and so um, I was still able to kind of draw that same um, narrative, but in a more succinct way. And um, it's kind of a, there's a lot of um, pastoral imagery in the text. He finds himself mm-hmm. kind of, I, it was very vivid imagery where you kind of see him set um, in all of these these kind of pastoral rural places, fields and orchards that he used to live, um, kind of, you know, unbeknownst to the living people that are still around him, kind of observing the people in his life. Um, so it has a, a bit of a, a surreal quality, but um, one that is very touching. He's very kind of fondly looking at, at the people in his life. So um, that's the, the general narrative. And so I tried to pick uh, a set that would still tell that story and that had like threads of similarity with the imagery, with the kind of um, physical setting that t- took place throughout the poem, um, throughout the set. And the the particular movement we're going to listen to, Gangrel, is um, it's kind of about like he's watching his daughter. Yeah, he, right? he's observing his daughter, and um, uh, there's a a storm coming on. So he is kind of watching her outside, um, and she gets caught in this storm, and it kind of represents his uh angst as he watches her and worries for her that she's caught in this this um, thunderstorm coming in so um yeah you can kind of sense his parental concern as he observes her outside in the storm yeah there was i think it's the third to last and second to last line were very i thought were very poignant um and I, I don't have the text in front of me right now, but it was something to the effect of like, I'm I'm afraid to see you. I'm afraid to not see you or something like that. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of, um, yeah, terrified um, to see you, terrified not to see you so that he, uh, yeah. you know, is terrified to see her in this situation, but then is also afraid to, to not be with her um, and this kind of detached way that you know i think it's a feeling of helplessness that he can see her but that he can't help her you know what um you you talked about this in the program notes but you you chose um you kind of uh looked uh looked to the past for some musical materials for this uh for this entire um project so can you can you talk about those yeah, so the uh, harmonic language um, was modeled after Olivier Messiaen's uh, Modes of Limited Transposition, which was a, a product actually of, again, that first piece that I wrote, which was for just viola and mezzo. Um, the violist that I wrote that first piece for was a Messiaen scholar, and so his musicological interest was in Messiaen. So as kind of a component of our collaboration at the beginning of this, I used one of Messian's modes, which are um, basically, he basically kind of cataloged symmetrical scales, kind of like the octatonic scale, whole tone uh-huh. scale, the most common ones, but he cataloged uh, eight of them total that are these symmetrical scales that kind of fold onto themselves. Um, so I utilized different modes, four different modes throughout the eight pieces, repeated each one twice. Um, and what's nice about these, um, these modes is uh, through their symmetry, they have kind of 
tonal implications, but don't unfold in a functional harmonic way uh, so that you can apply tonal centers, but it uh, generally kind of um, turns the harmony in a different way than, than a traditional um, tonal progression would. So I thought it was a nice way to set this uh, story that was kind of in between reality and and some other world so right never having never having a foothold never never feeling grounded you know right. all those all those things and that's what I thought the the I mean this particular movement uh, does very well also it um it kind of reminded me it not I mean the heart the the pitch material certainly does does give you a sense of Maybe not Messian because you're not really using it like Messian did, mm-hmm, right? You know, but it it kind of it, it reminded me of like a early 20th century treatment, kind of in the way you orchestrated with the string quartet some of the some of the rhythmic gestures you use. Was that a conscious decision, or is that something that is that um, a particular period of music that that speaks to you? The well, yeah, the decision to orchestrate or to match some of the the strings in the voice. You mean? Well, the what I wrote down in my notes were um, it's a messian sound with Ravel gestures. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it just it, there, there was something about the, the way you wrote for the string quartet that reminded me a lot of Ravel, and I can't mm-hmm. really put my finger on it, mm-hmm. but it was it, it's a very clean sounding string quartet. Yeah, yeah, actually, and I I had uh, that's funny you say that because I had been listening to the Ravel string quartet, the the string quartet that premiered this piece had recently performed that Ravel Quartet um, at the time I was writing it. Mm-hmm. So I had listened to some of their recordings, one of which was the Ravel Quartet. So that's interesting. That never was like a conscious, uh, I never consciously modeled after Ravel, but maybe it kind of seeped in there. <laughs> it seeped in, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, which uh, what string quartet are we going to hear uh, for the recording? So this is the same quartet that premiered the piece, and uh, they're called the Momenta String Quartet. They're based in New York City, um, they're a contemporary music string quartet, and I had the good fortune with, of being paired up with them while I was a doctoral student. They came for a residency at Temple University when I was a student there, and then um, I won a grant to have this full uh, work recorded and performed, and they agreed to take it on, so um, this was the result of that. And who's the mezzo-soprano? Her name is Sylvie Jensen, and she uh, splits her time between New York and Chicago. She sings for Chicago Lyric Opera. She's a stellar mezzo. Now we're going to hear movement number six, Gangrel, um, from the Years Later song cycle.
You did a master's degree at Bowling Green. I did. Right? Yep, that's my connection. Who did you study with while you were there? I studied with Burton Bierman my first year and Marilyn Shrewd my second year. What and just because you uh you know, I've I've had several people on on the podcast so far that were at BG. I mean, actually mm-hmm. it makes sense because a big portion of adjective all met each other or had some connection to BG uh-huh. at some point or another. Right. Um and I I did my undergraduate degree there, so oh. I'm always curious about. Um, actually, I was I was long gone before the other core members of Adjective ever got to BG, mm-hmm. but actually I still met them all through BG. I, I came back for one of the new music festivals. One of my pieces was being played, and that's um, I think <laughs> even though I was a uh, um, you know, I was a former student, and mm-hmm. I knew exactly where everyone, everything, and where everyone was. Mm-hmm. Um, Kurt Dole still assigned Andrew to me <laughs> as my like your liaison. liaison. Yeah, I'm like uh, yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm talking to Andrew. And I'm like Andrew. I don't. I mean, I I lived here for four years. I don't really need you, right. but it was great to meet them. And you know, so anyway, yeah, that's uh, great. What I'm I'm always curious about uh, the experience of other bg people i mean what did how did you how did you get along there um i really liked it there i mean i think um one thing that was just really positive was that we had a great cohort i would i came through the master's degree the same time that jamie and andrew did um so we were classmates there and we just had a really kind of solid cohort cohort and we all got along really well and kind of pushed each other i think 
for me, I think it was the right experience at the right time. I had done my undergrad at a really small liberal arts school that had like a really tiny music department. And um, so it was not really into the experimental music scene at all. And so I'd been, you know, um, kind of on a more conservative track at that point. My my teacher was into uh, electronic music. And so that's how he would kind of knew people at Bowling Green because he does EA stuff. Um, so he was the one who recommended the program to me. And yeah, so it was a good kind of, you know, exposure to more contemporary music and to plugging into um, the network out there and everything. So I, I enjoyed it. I had a good experience there. I thought it was, you know, the master's degree was... It's kind of a weird place. Yeah. You know, this like beacon of contemporary music amongst... In the middle of nowhere. Fields, I know. You know? Yeah. To, yeah be, exactly. to be totally honest, I like the first time I went out to visit... Uh, I flew into Detroit, I think, and then I had a interview in Michigan first and then like rented a car to drive down from Ann Arbor. And as soon as I got off the highway in Ann Arbor down whatever that road is that goes through the cornfields, I thought, oh, hell no, there's no way I'm going to go here. Like it's way, t- <laughs> way too rural. <laughs> but then I met everyone and then they gave me an assistantship and I was like, OK, fine. <laughs> I guess I can handle this for two years. <laughs> Yeah, four so. four years of cornfields. Well, I mean, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, so okay. So you're a local. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I it was just down the road for me, but mm-hmm. still, it was it's a weird place, but I I still love it. Yeah. yeah. Um. So let's talk about um be, because you were mentioning um electro electroacoustic music. Let's talk about your piece Lung Ta. Sure. So this is a piece for percussion and fixed media. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, is the, what does the title mean? So Lungta is a Tibetan phrase that means wind horse. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Lungta. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Close. <laughs> um, so the genesis of this um, concept, this piece, was uh, basically around... Uh, I was commissioned by a percussionist who um, wanted... He was doing kind of a very, he was uh, putting on a concert that had music um, with influences of all different um, corners of the world. And he really loved um, Tibetan prayer bowls, singing bowls, and the timbre that those generated and some of the extended techniques that you can um, draw out of those. So that was kind of the impetus that uh, we went with a Tibetan theme. And so um, Lungta is uh, essentially the name for the um, Tibetan prayer flags, like the the uh-huh. prayer ritual that, that surrounds those uh, Tibetan prayer flags that are very popular. You see it, meditation centers, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so that was really the genesis of the, the piece that each, it's five short movements kind of played continually. And each of the five movements represents one of the five colors in the flags. And the, the flags, each of the five colors represents one of the elements like earth water wind fire sky um so that Uh kind of became the um arc of the the piece to kind of represent each of those elements and then use the the prayer bowls as kind of a a bookmark for each um movement what are some of the extended techniques with prayer bowls um well the the one that uh kind of became the gesture that we used a lot was to uh, place them on a timpani and strike them and then um, gliss the timpani up and down so that the, oh. the struck prayer bowl then has a, a gliss sound to it. 
Um, and then there's also just bowing them, which is, you know, not that extended, but, um, so (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so there's basic, you know, struck sounds, there's the timpani gliss and then, uh, you know, using the, the wooden dowel to create a sustained sound and then, um, bowing them. So those were the techniques we used. I, I had never thought about the, um, putting it on the timpani. Yeah. And so that's that's where that kind of like wow 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 wow. Yeah. I can't do it, but like, but yeah. you're because actually, uh, logic mm-hmm. has um has like a prayer bowl sample, mm-hmm. and I think it's the lowest like on one a couple of the lower notes for their samples do that, and I was like, what is this? How do you get that? <laughs> yeah. And when I heard that, I immediately thought of that logic sample, and I'm hmm. like that that's that's crazy yeah so i'm i'm also a big fan of prayer bowls and i'm you know luckily in a place where i can get them yeah Um, absolutely yeah so i've got just i mean just on top of my piano i think i have five right now Mm -hmm. so that's awesome yeah there you go you could play along with the track (laughs) oh yeah i could anyway yeah that's actually a very similar pitch to uh to what's in the piece that's great yeah. So what uh what were some of the electronic sounds that you used in the piece? So um, it was a combination of audio samples that kind of uh, embodied the particular element um, and then sounds generated in logic to kind of meld the two. So uh, there are audio samples of like a crackling fire and a fireplace for the fire movement. There are audio samples of like water rushing on a, in a brook for the water um, and then I used, um, some synthetic sounds for, um, the, uh, sky and wind movement kind of that paired well with like the bowed vibes, which is what we were doing there. Um, just kind of shimmery, um, synthetic sounds to, to match mm-hmm. with that. So, yeah. And then gen- gentle processing on the audio. Um, what, uh, who, who are we going to hear perform this work? Uh, so this is a former classmate of mine named Adam Vidixis. He is also a composer and a percussionist, and, um, he is not the one who commissioned it. The commissioning percussionist's name is Thomas Kolakowski, uh, who I knew from Temple. And, um, I also knew Adam from Temple, but he, uh, performed it this past summer at the Splice Institute. Um, it's a festival Mm -hmm. in, in Michigan. And so... Uh, He played it there, and that's where this recording is from.
the prayer flags they're they're in five colors uh yellow green red white and blue which what what do all those kind of symbolize because you you have the five elements right um that are each of their movements Mm -hmm. so what are the colors yeah so let me go through that right now i'm just gonna pull up my little notes so i don't mix any of them up hold on one second Okay, um, so the um, blue flag symbolizes the sky and kind of space in general, and uh, the white symbolizes the air and wind. Red symbolizes fire, which makes sense. Um, green symbolizes the water, and the yellow symbolizes the earth. Um, so I actually just kind of said those in the reverse order of what, what they're presented as in the movement. So the, the five movements start with earth then move to water, then fire, then, um, air and wind. And I kind of, you know, in thinking about how to differentiate between air and wind sonically, uh, wind obviously has, uh, sonic implications, but air and sky, you know, without the wind was kind of, uh, you know, conceptually I had to kind of figure out how to distinguish. And I, I ended up kind of not really making a huge distinction between the two. Um, I have a kind of very recognizable um, hit with the prayer balls in between each movement, except for in between those two movements, they kind of blend into one since the two kind of are um, inextricably linked. So those are mm-hmm. the general um, symbols of each one. And, uh, so in general, all of these prayer flags are, are used to kind of promote strength and wisdom and peace. And um, they, the Tibetan monks um, use the prayers uh, with mantras and the idea is that the wind kind of blows through the flags and blows goodwill uh, into, into the ethers. <laughs> so it's a mm-hmm. nice, nice concept. Yeah. I was. I'm actually working with a student right now at Shanghai Conservatory. She's um, she's working on this piece. She went to Tibet, and oh, wow. she took really, really good recordings mm. of uh, monks um, mm-hmm. chanting and you know doing ceremonies. And those mm-hmm. huge um, like brass instruments. Yeah. That they you know that they play. Right. And I'm so jealous of of her sounds. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Like, amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, let's talk about your choral piece. This is the last piece we'll listen to, and it's Upon a Wheel of Cloud. Mm-hmm. And this is on text of Emily Dickinson. And actually, we were, uh, I was talking with Evan Williams, another, mm-hmm. the the other uh, newest member of Adjective. Right. And he as well had some Emily Dickinson ah. uh, settings. So, and I, and I was asking him, so I'll ask you too, um, why Emily Dickinson? Everyone, everyone is so in love with Emily Dickinson. So yeah. why, why does she, why are you drawn to Emily Dickinson? I guess. Um, well, I mean, her she has. Uh, I think her work just really lends itself to text setting, and um, she has such great. I mean, I I myself am a composer who's really drawn to to narrative and to um, kind of you know programmatic types of of music. So when I read poetry that also kind of is very um 
vivid in terms of uh, imagery or storytelling, kind of similar to what I was saying with, with the other um, texts that I've worked with. I, uh, you know, I, I tend to be drawn to that. And her, her poetry has such a lyrical quality in and of itself. It has kind of a, a song-like quality to, um, okay. to it with, without being, you know, sing-songy or, or saccharine. You know, she has kind of um, right. depth to her poetry that, but it's still so um, kind of, yeah, lyrically or melodically written in a way. So that's what, what draws me to her work. Another big perk of hers, and we said, and we said this with Evan, is that you know her works are in the public domain. Yes, so. right. Logistically, it helps that she has a ton of work that's all public domain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so this this piece is uh for chorus and with piano and also a soloist at the end. Yes. But it seemed like there was there was a kind of um there was a bigger relationship between the chorus and the piano than just um, like subject and accompaniment. So what is the relationship between them? Yeah. I mean, I, I tried to really give the piano a role in the narrative, in the telling of the text. And um, you know, that this, this text is again, basically about a, a rainstorm coming in. I have, it's funny, I didn't really intentionally pair my two texts to be both about a rainstorm, but there it is. And so, yeah, I mean, I kind of tried to um, do a significant amount of text painting um, with the piano and not have it just be kind of um, secondary or, or in a, just a supportive role for, for the voice. This was written for the Temple University Concert Choir, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And did... This so this was written during your doctorate degree. This was actually after written uh, after I left. I um, uh-huh. it was written the year after I graduated. And that's that's who we're going to hear. Yes. So the Temple University Concert Choir under the direction of Paul Rardin. Yes. And this is upon a wheel of cloud.
Thinking about the three pieces that we heard from you today, I, they're they're all like very different. Mm-hmm. That you is know, true. In terms of in in terms of uh, you know language, in terms of tone, in terms of I mean, in, in terms of a lot of things. So, would mm-hmm. you say that you can slide between those different modes of expression easily? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I my compositional process is usually very driven by like whatever the particular uh, project is that I'm working on. And I, I tend to uh, really kind of plan my pieces around, you know, thinking about um, who's going to be performing them or like, I think the medium for which I'm composing tends to kind of push my, my work into one kind of way or another. So um, yeah, but I think, you know, uh, the further along I get and, and the more that I write it, it tends to be easier and easier to kind of bounce around between different aesthetics. Um, and, you know, I think just the nature of, for example, writing electronic music um, tends to kind of push me into a different mindset just because the timbral world that you're dealing with is so different and the, the possibilities are so different from writing for an SATB choir, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I think... Um, it has become fairly easy to switch. Don't you think writing in those, in those different, it sounds like, it sounds like what you're saying is, um, whatever medium you're, you're going to write for, you kind of go and do the things in that medium. But is that for you, is there any like crosstalk? So you go write an electronic piece and then you bring some of those things into your choral piece or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, like as different as all three of these pieces are, they all have something to do with like natural elements and, you know, uh-huh. rain or storm or, you know, fire or whatever. So um, I think that, and I didn't even intentionally, you know, pair all three <laughs> of these thinking that they all had something to do with water or, or whatever. So, you know, that's like a, I think thematically I tend to kind of gravitate towards certain things and yeah, I mean my um, yeah, I think certainly one, one piece influences the other, even if they're in very different genres. So, okay. So I'll ask the, the last question the big the bigger question is how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life that's a great question um well I was thanks (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) I kind of always uh had I mean music was always a big part of my life I started um as a vocalist as a singer myself from a very young age and it was always like singing in the choir was always my favorite thing and I couldn't wait to get old enough to take voice lessons. And um, I played French horn for about 10 years from when I was nine years old. And yeah, it was always just something that I felt at home with and that made me really happy and that um, I felt really connected with other people while, you know, participating in music making. 
So from a very early age, I think I knew I wanted to pursue music. I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. I just kind of knew that I wanted to like go to college and be a music major. And I don't think when I was young, I really kind of had a clear trajectory of what that meant in terms of a career. Um, and then once I did start college and, um, you know, was being exposed to things that I hadn't really, um, you know, studied as a high school student, I, um, kind of was steered more towards composition. I started, you know, taking the basic theory classes and all that stuff and, and found myself much more drawn to making arrangements for my vocal ensembles and, uh, doing my theory work than I was interested in, you know, practicing for my voice lessons and stuff like that. So, (laughs) (laughs) always, yeah. So I was just much more interested in, um, you know, studying what was on the page and figuring out why I was singing, you know, the part I was singing or whatever. So um, once I started taking composition lessons, I think as a sophomore, it was the first time I took lessons, I was kind of hooked. And, uh, and I'd always um, also been drawn to teaching. I've always liked um, kind of working as in a in a teaching capacity in various um, roles in, in my young life. And so um it just kind of became clear to me that I wanted to to teach music from that point on. So was there was there a piece that did it for you? I mean, you said you were a voice major and you were kind mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, I don't you know, I don't want to practice. I'd much yeah. rather do this. But th- <laughs> was there like was there a piece that kind of um, either that you listened to or even that you wrote where you were like, no, I'm going to be a composer? Oh, that's a great question. Probably, uh, I mean, there were a lot of great pieces that I did in college. Um, probably when I was an undergrad, the uh, we did the Verdi Requiem, and that was one of those pieces that I just kind of was amazed by. And like I said, my undergrad, I hadn't, it wasn't really exposed to a lot of contemporary music as an undergrad, but um, in terms of like, you know, uh, common practice rep, um, the Verdi Requiem was, yeah, was one of those that I was like, wow, this is, you know, a really mind blowing piece of music. (laughs) Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, so what are you, uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, right now I'm working on a, actually another string quartet, uh, string quartet, uh, and bassoon. I am um, working for a string quartet that is working on a concert that they want to do like string quartet and friends kind of, um, you uh-huh. know, and, and do a bunch of pieces that are string quartet plus plus a fifth instrument. So um, yeah, string quartet and bassoon. And uh, I mean, I just have to ask this: uh, Are you gonna mm-hmm. are you gonna use any uh, bassoon multiphonics? Oh, more than likely, yes. There, yeah. I think there's a because of our our, co- our colleague Jamie, yes, that's more than likely, and uh, also there's a high probability that uh, she's gonna get uh, asked to play the thing at some oh, point nice. or another. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. So you heard it here um, first, Jamie. Get ready. That's right. <laughs> it's coming your way. <laughs> well, where can people find you online to find your music and also connect with you? If- sure. My website is www.annienykirk.com dot com so you can find me there awesome well thank you so much for doing this annie my pleasure it's great to talk with you robert
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.